Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. Today we're discussing three cases of jealousy, rage, infidelity, and mistresses who murdered. Let's get into it. Number three, Elisa Jackson. It was on November 15th, 2014, when 40-year-old Sergeant Michael Walker, an army medic, returned home at approximately 6 a.m. after working a night shift at the Tripler Army Medical Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. He walked upstairs and found his wife, 38-year-old Catherine Walker, bloody on the floor of their primary bedroom. He quickly called 911. Military police officers arrived at approximately 6.40 a.m., and it took Walker 90 seconds to come down and answer the door for law enforcement. According to the first responding officer, Walker appeared to be on the phone with his chain of command. He escorted the officer to the bedroom, where they saw Catherine on the floor with a bloody knife next to her body. First responders showed up shortly after, pushing past Walker and the officer. Catherine was pronounced dead at the scene and suffered multiple stab wounds to the neck and torso. The military police officer escorted Walker downstairs, asking him to wait outside while they checked on his wife. He asked if he could sit on the couch downstairs, as he'd be more comfortable there, and the officer allowed this. While Walker was waiting on the sofa, he told the officer that he tried to perform CPR but was unsuccessful. Walker was an army medic, and he knew what he was doing. However, the officer noted that Walker was clean, with no signs of blood, which was odd as the scene upstairs had been quite bloody. Walker was later asked to move to the front porch while the officers processed the scene. While in the porch, the first officer on the scene stayed with Walker. Not long after, agents from the Department of the Army Criminal Investigation Division, CID, arrived, and asked Sergeant Walker if he could come to their office to answer some questions. Walker didn't object and went with the agents willingly. Catherine and Michael lived on the Aliamanu military reservation in Hawaii. The two had been married for 11 years, and according to friends, they'd always seemed so happy and sounded like the perfect couple. They were both involved in their church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Catherine had talked with friends about wanting to start a family. To everyone they knew, they had a wonderful marriage. Catherine was proud to be a military wife, and she loved to travel and the life that she had built with Michael. During the interview with CID, many questions came to light. Spouses are almost always asked questions and are very often the first suspects. When they arrived at the CID office, a military building, Walker was asked to give up his cell phone, which is normal procedure. The agents then escorted Walker to an interview room, where they asked him to hand over his clothes for evidence, just in case something had transferred when he performed CPR on his wife. After, an agent interviewed Walker, asking the normal questions. 
like if he knew who might have done this to his wife, where he was at the time of the murder, what his alibi might be. Walker had a solid alibi, which was that he was working a 12-hour shift at the hospital, with lots of witnesses that saw him there. At one point, Walker suggests that his wife might have committed suicide, which was later found to be impossible based on the placement of the knife wounds. Agents would ask for permission to look at his phone, which Walker gave. Walker was never put under arrest at this time, and he was free to leave whenever he liked. However, he stayed, and after lunch, now more than six hours after finding his wife murdered, the questions shifted dramatically. The agent started asking if he had any relationships outside of his marriage. He would admit to having affairs with both men and women, having had sex with men for money, and he mentioned a woman named Lisa. He also admitted to being a sex addict. They're on the ground. And blood everywhere. Uh, there's a knife on her side. Touching off of where I remember. It almost looks like she took her own life. I don't know why she would do that. Okay, I have a problem. Okay. I'm a sex addict. Okay. I had to deal with a freaking psycho uh-huh. threatened her life. Threaten your wife's life. Threaten my wife's life. Because she wanted to be with me and me only. I didn't think she was going to do it. Authorities then started to look at any of Walker's current and past affairs. Over the next few months, they went through emails and phone records. They talked to as many of his past affairs as possible. Some didn't want to come forward because they had families. They eventually narrowed in on one woman, the one that Walker mentioned in his interview. 29-year-old Elisa, or Lisa, Jackson, who at the time of the murder was living with her parents in the same neighborhood as the Walkers. Elisa Jackson worked at a movie theater and was supposed to work on November 16th. However, she was reported to have come to work, left shortly after, and had not been seen again. Jackson had moved to live with family in Indiana suddenly. She was arrested in April 2015 for first-degree murder. She was extradited back to Hawaii, Jackson confessed, and told the story of why she had killed Catherine. Elisa Jackson and Michael Walker had met online in September 2014, and they'd started an affair quickly. Elisa often came over to the house when Catherine wasn't home. After one sexual encounter, the two were sitting on the couch talking. Elisa stated that she had opened up about her mental health difficulties. They spoke of their greatest desires. This was when Walker talked about his greatest desire to be free of his wife but that he couldn't afford to divorce her. He spoke about the $400,000 life insurance he had on his wife. That they could be together if she was gone. Greatest Desire became a code for the couple. Quote, I want you so bad it's like a craving, Jackson wrote to Walker a month before the murder. Quote, I know, me too, Walker replied, if only someone was out of the way. I know, Jackson said. They had many texts and email conversations on the topic about wanting each other. In one email conversation, Jackson talked about needing Walker's permission, believed to be permission to kill his wife. Walker then gave that permission in a following email. On November 4th, Jackson attempted to go to the house, but it was locked and she left. A text conversation followed, quote, I need my desire taken care of soon. I'm going crazy, Walker said to Jackson. She responded, quote, I know, Daddy Cakes. I was going to, but ran into a problem. 
Authorities believed it had been code that she couldn't get into the house and that she had an access problem. He wrote back, Oh, I see. I can help with that. On November 14, 2014, Jackson and Walker met at the gym parking lot on the military reservation, a usual meetup spot for them. They created a code that Walker would type good if Jackson entered through a window or bad if she was supposed to use a hidden key in the back of the house. Later that day, Walker texted her, bad. Elisa Jackson arrived at the house around midnight and retrieved the key hidden in the backyard. Upon entering the house, she got a knife from the knife block in the kitchen, walked upstairs to where Catherine was sleeping in bed. Jackson began to attack Catherine, however she woke up and stood out of bed. Jackson then forced her to the floor where she stabbed her several more times. Jackson said that while she had stabbed Catherine, she had asked for her forgiveness, and Catherine had replied yes. Jackson waited on the bed for 30 minutes while she watched Catherine take her last breath. She then went through Catherine's purse, looking through her wallet and looking at her ID. Jackson took nothing from the house. She then went home, waited for Walker to call her. He never got in contact with Jackson after his wife's murder. This followed evidence that law enforcement found. There was no forced entry into the home, nothing was taken, but a light switch and a purse had traces of blood on them, including the ID. During Jackson's confession, she revealed that she had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. At the time of the murder, she'd been off her medications due to a lapse in health insurance, and that the entire time she'd been with Walker, it had felt like one big manic episode. Elisa Jackson now faced a death penalty because the murder was committed on federal land. She made a plea agreement with the approval of Catherine's family to testify against Michael Walker in exchange for a lesser sentence. In December 2015, Jackson pleaded guilty and was convicted to 30 years of first-degree murder. In November 2015, Michael Walker was charged with the murder of his wife, Catherine. He pleaded not guilty and was initially supposed to stand trial in mid-2016, but in 2016, he was court-martialed with charges of creating child-explicit images, the sexual assault of a minor, and physical assault of a minor. While investigating his computer for evidence related to his wife's murder, they found inappropriate communications with a young boy. In 2017, he was sentenced in military court to three years in prison for possession of inappropriate child materials and 10 years for the assault of a minor. Also in 2017, he filed an appeal to have some of his original video interviews removed from the records as his lawyers were arguing it violated his Fifth Amendment rights. He won that appeal because they hadn't read him his Miranda rights, and during the interrogation, the agent had asked questions after he had invoked his rights for legal counsel. But yesterday, just days before trial was set to begin, a federal judge ruled most of the interrogation by military investigators cannot be seen by the jury. Basically suppressed the entire confession as involuntary and coerced due to abusive police misconduct. Walker's attorney, Bernie Brevard, says his client's rights were clearly violated. Accusatory questions without reading him as Miranda rights. When he did read him as Miranda rights, he said, do you want a lawyer? My client said, yes, I want a lawyer. He refused to accept that. 
He's supposed to stop the interrogation, get him a lawyer. He, he kept going, kept going. Prosecutors agreed that some parts of the confession should be suppressed, but the judge apparently went further than they expected and appears to have damaged their case. They're hoping the Ninth Circuit will allow them to use other parts of the video, especially if Walker tells a different story on the stand. This included information about the affairs, but not the information found on the cell phone. While serving his 10-year sentence in September 2019, Michael Walker pleaded guilty with a plea agreement that he would serve 30 to 33 years and take the death penalty off the table. In February 2020, Michael Walker was sentenced to 35 years for first-degree murder, five more years than Elisa Jackson. District Judge Susan Oki Malway said she sentenced Walker to more time than Jackson because he was the one who orchestrated the murder, saying, quote, Miss Jackson wielded the knife that killed your wife, and that was a terrible, terrible deed. But it does appear that you were in control, and she did what she did because you wanted her to, and you knew she had mental problems. Walker has since been dishonorably discharged from the military. Number 2. Karen Brand On August 3, 2002, around 12.30 a.m., Glenn Godfrey, 53, and his wife, Patricia, 52, returned home. Glenn and Patricia had been married for 35 years, and they had four children and 13 grandchildren. He had just retired as commissioner of the Department of Public Safety on June 30th. The two had recently taken a trip to Afghanak Island. They went fishing, hiking, berry picking, and kayaking. The couple were scheduled to leave on August 6th for Switzerland for the 35th wedding anniversary slash retirement trip. The two had been home for about an hour and were in the living room. When Patricia started to make her way towards the kitchen, while Glenn went to the entryway of the home, opening the closet. Then they were confronted by a woman who jumped out of the closet, and she immediately shot Glenn twice in the stomach and once in the head. The woman ran towards Patricia, shooting frantically, hitting her four times in the arm, leg, stomach, and chest. The woman started to fuss with the gun. Experts believe it may have jammed or ran out of bullets. Then she bolted for the garage. Patricia made it to the bedroom where she called 911. She told the dispatcher she'd been shot, her address, and her daughter's phone number. During the 911 call, Patricia reported hearing another gunshot, and she believed that the woman had shot herself. It would take first responders 48 long minutes before they could reach Patricia due to an error with dispatch. They followed the address given by the computer instead of using the address provided by the victim. The address was one of about 5,000 not on the map in the database at the time. Several officers had been interviewed and had been given multiple different addresses that they had been told to find the victim. It was reported that dispatch had upset Patricia so much she'd hung up on them more than once. She then attempted to call her kids for aid instead. Dispatch did get her to stay on the line, and Patricia prayed for herself and her husband. She begged them to find her, told them that she was in pain, and thought she was going to die. She yelled that all she wanted to do was talk to her kids. First responders did finally find her house. When first responders finally arrived, they found Glenn and the woman deceased at the front door, and Patricia alive but in critical condition. Patricia's right arm bone had been shattered. She had a severed colon, leg injuries, and one shot to the chest. However, no major organs had been hit, 
and after a few surgeries, it was discovered that she'd make a full recovery. The woman was identified as 33-year-old Karen Brand, a vice president of Alaska's Chamber of Commerce, a woman Glenn had been having an affair with for the past year. Glenn had recently ended the affair, and he had recently reconciled with his wife Patricia after they had separated for some time. Brand had no drugs or alcohol in her system at the time of the shooting. She had also been harassing both Patricia and Glenn with several menacing phone calls in the days prior to the attack. The gun used was a 44 caliber Magnum pistol registered to Glenn Godfrey. Police believed that Karen had gained access to the gun while she was in the home and stated that they didn't believe that there had been any plans before that day to murder. In 2004, Patricia received a settlement for the city of Anchorage, Alaska, totaling $700,000. The lawsuit alleged gross negligence and a violation of the right to confidentiality concerning a delayed response to Godfrey's 911 call in 2002. Patricia is believed to still be living in Alaska. Number 1. Lisa Brown On Wednesday, July 15, 2015, 50-year-old Sandra Barnett, wife of ex-NFL Buffalo Bills player Buster Barnett. She was on the phone with a friend when a woman came banging on the door saying, quote, Open this door, open this door, or I'm going to kill you. The friend reported to hearing Sandra say, Are you Lisa Brown? before the call cut out. The friend tried calling back with no answer. She then tried calling the police but didn't live in the area, so she called a mutual friend. He immediately went and drove by the Burnett house. He then saw a woman standing next to a black Dodge Durango. When he pulled around, it was gone. He called the police, and a search for Sandra had started. On July 16th, the Durango was spotted in Clayton County, Georgia. Police gave chase, and Alabama state troopers joined when the SUV crossed state lines. The SUV eventually stopped in the middle of the I-20 in Claiborne County, Alabama, at mile marker 208. A standoff started, and it would end when Lisa Brown retrieved a gun from the back seat of the car, shooting Sandra in the head before shooting herself. Both women were pronounced dead at the scene. In the SUV, they found handcuffs and a receipt that showed they'd been purchased hours before the abduction. It was later discovered that Lisa Brown had gone to Buster Barnett's work on the morning of July 15th because she was upset that he'd planned a vacation with his wife to Las Vegas. Buster actually owned the Durango Lisa had used to abduct his wife. Buster had been having an affair with Lisa Brown for years. Police believe that Brown left Buster's work with the intention of abducting Sandra. After knocking on the door, she forced her into the SUV. Police never found what had happened to the woman between the abduction on July 15th and when they were spotted and chased on July 16th. This was also not Lisa's first kidnapping. She was on probation out of Texas for kidnapping her child, who she lost custody of. It had taken authorities more than three days to track her down then. Sandra was a beloved teacher at the McNair Middle School, where she worked with kids with special needs. Sandra had married Buster in 1987. However, in 2011, Buster filed for divorce. Initially, he was granted the divorce in 2012, but it was overturned when Sandra said she never received the papers, saying that they were sent to the wrong address. It is unclear if Buster was living with Lisa at the time. Buster filed for divorce again in 2015, and there was no information about why they were going to Las Vegas. Lisa had reportedly been harassing Sandra for years prior to the abduction. 
Lisa had several mental health issues, which included violent and suicidal tendencies. She'd been in a two-year relationship with Buster. He owned the home that she lived in, and is believed that the two shared a residence together. Buster won control over his wife's estate, saying that he had no involvement in the kidnapping or murder of his wife. Courts ruled in his favor because he had never been convicted in civil or criminal court. There's no evidence that he knew what Lisa Brown was planning to do. Well, folks, we've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.